The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news of him spread throughout the whole region. He taught in their synagogues and was praised by all. He came to Nazareth, where he had grown up, and went according to his custom into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Rolling up the scroll, he handed it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue looked intently at him. He said to them, Today, this scripture passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every four years in our country, um, people who believe that they have the ability to lead the country as the President of the United States uh, begin their campaigns, and they usually begin them by going home to their, their hometown and getting a local band and some balloons and confetti and a crowd, and, and there they announce their candidacy in front of their own people and, and proclaim to them how good they are and then let everyone know their plan for action for saving the country. It's a thing that happens every four years. Candidates just seem to have to go back home to do their initial big announcement that they're running for President of the United States. In a, in a way, it's kind of like that, this opening story in, in, in Luke's Gospel. You know, Jesus has been kind of working already a little bit. He got himself baptized in the Jordan River, and, and, and now he comes back to Nazareth, his hometown. And, and he takes his place in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and here he is going to announce to his own people who he is, what he's up to, what the, what the heck is going on with him, what's moving him, what his plan is for saving Israel. 
And Jesus does something pretty extraordinary in that context. Everybody's listening, everybody's looking. Only thing they're missing is the brass band, perhaps. But they, he, he takes the scroll, big beautiful scrolls, there's no books in those days, and he goes to the scroll of Isaiah and he unwinds it and unwinds it and unwinds it until he gets to almost the very end. And there, while everybody's attentively listening to him, waiting for him to speak, he reads those beautiful words of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has sent me to go forth and proclaim good news to the captives and release to the prisoners and, and all of that. It's a beautiful passage, and it's so meaningful, it's so concise and, and perfect for, for his initial announcement of his, his plan of salvation. As we hear it in Luke's gospel, though, there's something kind of odd about it. Because if you go back and actually compare Luke's version of those verses from Isaiah with the actual versions in Isaiah, you'll, you'll notice almost immediately that there's something missing in the original that Luke and or Jesus adds to the version we just heard. So stuck right in the middle between all of the other this is what I'm going to do's of that great announcement is to proclaim the word of God, yes, to bring freedom to, to slaves, yes, to release to the oppressed, yes, to proclaim a year of favor, yes, but right smack dab in the middle, split between all those others, Luke adds to open the eyes of the blind. And because it's right there in the center, because it's been added in, obviously for, for Jesus and for Luke, this is a big deal. This is the heart of the matter. This is really, really, really what he's going to be doing. And, and we know, of course, that Jesus does go forward and he does miraculously open eyes of blind people as well as healing the skin of lepers and, and healing the bones of crippled people and even before the whole thing is over, of course, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. So he is a miracle worker. He does heal people and that is certainly a big part of his ministry. But the importance of that verse added in has to be more than just another miracle worker, another healer on the scene of Israel. Actually, of course, there is a golden thread that connects that verse, that little line about opening the eyes of the blind, all the way to the end of the story. It brings it all the way to that wooden cross sitting on top of a dusty hill outside the walls of Jerusalem. Because that's really where Jesus does his deepest work of opening the eyes of the blind. And, and we can say, well, the blind, of course, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all those people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's not really it. What's really happening in those last days of Jesus' life is the fulfillment of that that point in his plan, in his campaign, mentioned so long ago in Nazareth in the synagogue, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal in a deeper, greater, more rich way than we could ever even have imagined we never thought of before. And what is it that our eyes are opened to? Well, it's one thing for Jesus to stand there as an all-powerful miracle worker and place his hand on somebody's eyes and open their eyes so that they can see for the first time. It's quite another thing when it is Jesus 
who is blind, Jesus who is sick, Jesus who is weak, Jesus who is experiencing the limitations of human life. When Jesus is oppressed, when Jesus is enslaved, when Jesus is suffering and losing his energy and dying, then it's a different thing. Because what that moment in the story is telling us that this is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise so long ago is that he is telling us that in our suffering, in our weakness, in our limitations, in our experiences of being oppressed, in our experience of being held captive by anything or anyone, in our experiences of sickness and weakness, and even the process, the slow process of dying, we are not alone. Jesus is not only there with us, holding our hand in a sense, as we go through those dark moments of our life, but Jesus is going through those dark moments with us. He's experiencing the oppression that sometimes afflicts our lives. He's experiencing the captivity that sometimes affects our lives. He's experiencing with us the weakness that we experience, the limitations that we experience, the pain that we experience, the suffering that we experience, even the dying that we inevitably experience. And this is so important for us to know that have our eyes open to this. That in every moment of our lives where we experience weakness, pain, suffering, oppression, the heaviness of evil in whatever form, Jesus is there with us, experiencing it too with us. And, and of course there's more. It's not just, well, okay, we'll get through this together. But he also offers us extraordinary hope because we know what will happen in the end. Because we know that after three days, after he has breathed his last, <laughs> he will rise from the dead. And he assures us that that resurrection from the dead, that resurrection from suffering, that resurrection from weakness, that resurrection from the limitations of our body, that resurrection from hurt and anger and suffering and oppression and captivity in all of its forms is not just for him, but is for all of us. And that changes how we suffer. That changes how we experience our weakness. That changes how we experience even our dying. We suffer, we experience weakness, we experience sickness, we experience oppression, we experience captivity, we experience even dying itself. Not as the end of the story, but as the beginning of the story of new life. And therefore it has meaning. Therefore it has salvific power. Therefore it gives us hope and allows us to rejoice. And this, this beautiful sacrament that the church offers to us so often, whether it's in our living room or in a hospital room or in a hospice room or here in this church, this sacrament of the anointing of the sick, gives us an opportunity yet again to have our eyes opened to the great mystery of Christian suffering and weakness and death. 
It allows us to see yet again, not just that, oh, maybe I'll be healed, but far more importantly, whatever happens to me, especially in my weakness, especially in my suffering, especially in my sickness, especially in my dying, God is here with me. And all of this is a door to eternal life to life in its fullness, to life with Christ, life with the Spirit, life with God the Father, life with the saints, that never ends. This is a sacrament of hope. This is a sacrament of joy. This is an experience of having our eyes opened yet again to the resurrection at work in our lives.